We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, good morning. Welcome to Jefferson Town Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and uh, I'm the director of family ministries uh, here at JBC, uh, and I am not the pastor. Uh, pastor Grant is, uh, is with family this morning, so we praise God for that. Uh, but I am blessed to be burdened with being your preacher this morning. And so uh, we are going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, mainly verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible. It's right after Numbers, right before Joshua. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 151. So you can start to turn there now. And we'll read uh, in Deuteronomy 6. I'll actually start in verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 9. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God, Praise you for your word. Father, I ask that, uh, that you would fill me with the spirit uh, to proclaim your glories, that you would fill those hearing with the spirit that they may be affected um, by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. Father, may you be glorified in the proclamation of your son by the power of your spirit this morning. Amen. I, I wonder, uh, did you ever practice parenting with your children? Or, or has, have your parents ever practiced parenting with you? Maybe I should say kind of practicing obedience. Um, I, I'm reminded, I actually couldn't find it, so maybe it wasn't actually there, but, but there, there used to be these old commercials. They're more kind of like public service announcements uh, where they would, they would encourage parents uh, to, to have conversations with their children as a sort of practice of a certain scenario or situation they might find themselves in. So if, 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 uh, if a kid were to, to be encountered with, with alcohol or drugs, uh, the parents have already prepared them. They've had that conversation where the, the child hasn't, doesn't have to think on the fly, right? They've been prepped and they know to say no to that. Or maybe you have a different conversation uh, with your children where they, they come into the room and they demand something and you say no. You back that conversation up and you say, let's try this again. You're, you're, you're going to start with may I or will you, and you're going to end with please. Uh, Laura and I do this uh, with our children. Uh, we've actually practiced obedience by when we say their name, they should turn their head or they should come to us. Uh, and, and even more recently, uh, with all the holidays, uh, we've, we've had to do this as we uh, perhaps in the car rides over or, or right inside the door, going to various people's houses, cousins running around everywhere. Uh, as soon as we get there, Right, we, we fill them with a final exhortation that you need to obey mama and papa. And, and you should obey just like you always do, uh, but uh, this, is, this is how we have trained you. Uh, but their obedience is always important, but now in the midst of, of, of being out in public or in the midst of family chaos, the stakes are higher. They need to obey. And uh, in part, we actually see Moses doing that this morning in the book of Deuteronomy. Before we jump into the text, uh, I do want to lay some, some groundwork, kind of a foundation uh, for the book of Deuteronomy as we study that together this morning. 
Uh, so Deuteronomy is the, the final book in what is called the Pentateuch. So those are the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it's also referred to as the Torah. And uh, Torah basically just means law. That's something we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, most of us are familiar with, with the narrative, the, the stories in these first five books of the Bible, with, uh, with creation, which we're actually looking at. Many of you are familiar with, uh, with Noah and the flood, with Abraham, with Moses, the Exodus, um, uh, even uh, uh, Numbers or Leviticus, where we have a lot of this law. So most of you are familiar with these, these stories. And Deuteronomy, at, at the beginning of the Bible, and the end of this, uh, this collection of five books, it does set up the narrative. Joshua is going to succeed Moses, and he's going to lead the people into the promised land. Uh, but Deuteronomy also, uh, it does something else. It also sets up the rest of the law. That's actually where we get the word Deuteronomy. It means second law. That doesn't mean that Moses is giving a new law or, or uh, you know, the Ten Commandments 2.0 or something like that. Uh, but it means it's a repetition of the law. So uh, better yet, you can actually say a copy of the law. That's the phrase that's used in Deuteronomy 17. So, Moses is the author of Deuteronomy, he's actually the author of the entire Pentateuch, and, and he writes it near the end of his life. In fact, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. So this is the end of his, end of his life, and it's written after the Israelites have wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their lack of faith in and their disobedience to the one true God. Now, many of you remember that story. God, oh, he displays his awesome power in Egypt during the Exodus. The Hebrews leave under Moses' God-ordained leadership. They make it to the inhabited land of Abraham's promise. They send in the spies. They receive a good port of the land, but they receive a bad report of the people. And so then they are afraid. They refuse to obey God, and they don't go to war against these people. They don't drive them out as God commands them to. And so that entire generation is condemned to death. They wander in the desert until they die because of their disobedience. So, right after that, Moses comes again with the whole law, and he's, he has this final exhortation, just like with parents and their children. Moses is saying that all of our former obedience is leading to this. We don't want to mess this up again. Please remember, know the law. And so, he tells it to them again. And in retelling the law, Moses reminds them of the covenant between God and his people. It is interesting that the retelling of the law and the reminding of the covenant is actually set up, the entire book of Deuteronomy is set up similar to how, how you would see a, a treaty of that same time period. So the beginning of the book starts with the introduction of the author and it gives a, a historical background between the two parties. So the beginning, of, uh, the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses recounts everything that happened between him and God after the Exodus and, and how they disobeyed. And then it goes on to offer all the obligations of the law, all the stipulations of the law, and so on. And so he's, he's reminding them of this covenant, and we, we come to take two on the promised land. And Moses is reminding the Israelites who they are because of who God is, and that who they are and where they are going depend on God as they strive to walk by faith in obedience. So that was a really large foundation, but with it set, uh, this morning we are going to be building towards three points of law love, and legacy. Mainly, we're going to see this in verses 4 through 9. But we're actually going to refer to the entire chapter. So in verse 4, we see that, uh, that there, is a, there is a receiving and a remembering of the law. Verses 5 and 6, there is, a, there is a, a total and a true love for God. And then verses 7 through 9, there is a, a personal and a public legacy. So we jump in to verse 4. Now, remember... In Deuteronomy chapter 5, he's, he's retelling the law. So chapter 5 is actually the, the second uh, copy of the Ten Commandments. You find that in Exodus, and then you find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So, so chapter 5 gave us the Ten Commandments. We have the context of the Ten Commandments. And then Deuteronomy 6 starts with, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So he's, he's, he's entering into this. These are the commandments. And then, there, then verse 4, he says, hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So, these are the Ten Commandments. Here's the law. This is what you're supposed to follow. This is what you're supposed to live by. This is what you're supposed to know. So, hear, listen, O people of God. 
this is not the first or the last time that Moses is going to call the Israelites to hear. Moses is retelling the law, and he calls the people to hear so they may take it in. They're, they're, they're kind of reminded of this, um, that when they hear, when they hear that word here, uh, it is a constant reminder that Israel is a people summoned by God to hear God's word. That's why they left Egypt, to go into the wilderness and to receive the law. They were not merely spectators at a divine show, but recipients of the divine revelation in words. They were to hear the truth and respond to it. So the people of God receive the word of God. He gave them the law. When Moses commands here, he is saying, you have the law, now listen to it. And we actually might do something similar. So, so Laura and I, when we're telling each other about our day, and, and someone uses the phrase, uh, yeah, I got up this morning and read for a little bit. Uh, I don't ask, oh, what, what book did you pick up from the library? Now, I know that Laura's talking about she had a time of devotion that morning. She was reading the Bible that morning. And friends, we have received special revelation from God, and it is the Bible. So, so listen, hear, read, oh, people of God. Take it in. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the Scriptures. In verse 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has revealed himself in his word that we may know who he is and who we are. And we are then shaped by his word, changed to be more like his word. And as our creator God, we receive the word that he has given us, and it is good, it is beneficial, it is to be treasured. We see this in Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then verse 10 of Psalm 19, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Are you, are you treasuring that received word of God? Are you desiring it more than gold? Is it, more, is it of more value to you than any other possession? Or instead, do you value a few extra minutes of sleep? Do you, do you treasure your time on Netflix or even another book? Husbands, wives, do you encourage your spouse with the word? Do you point one another to the truth of the gospel? Do you help each other and push one another on to read the Bible and study God's truth together? Women, are you, are you still looking to the media, to culture, to tell you how to live? Because now they're not only telling you what to look like, but they're telling you how to think and how to act. Or are you looking to the revelation of God in the word to find your identity in Christ and receive wisdom from the testimony of the Lord? Men, are you, are you still weak from treasuring the things of this world? Because culture is, tell, culture is telling you what to look at and to not think. Brothers, stand firm at the foundation of God. Rise with the strength of God in our King Jesus so that you may willingly lay down your life to serve others. My, my more mature brothers and sisters, my, my grandparents in the faith, have you become complacent? Have you already read that? Are you, do you want to finish strong? Are you continually looking for teaching and correcting, perhaps even in old age? God uses his word to make the people of God complete. And you're, you're probably not there yet. So please, press on. Finish the race strong. Because we have received this word, we pause to hear. We let the Bible inform us and shape us and direct us. So Moses calls the people to hear, to receive that word. But what is he calling them uh, to hear? I find this really interesting. The rest of verse 4. Moses commands, hear, O Israel. And then he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses is introducing the law and referring to the law, and he makes a statement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
This doesn't sound like a law, but it does give us context and it gives meaning to the law. So as the people of God receive the law, they are also called to remember. Who is it that is giving them this law? What is the context of receiving the law? What does it mean that they have the law? There is context to this statement, and Moses Moses opens wide all the meanings when he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Most recently, I think this takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, the beginning, the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Just a chapter earlier, Deuteronomy 5, 6, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here we learn that the context for God giving them the law is his love and redemption for his people. His law is good. In his law, we see and experience his love and redemption. This is who he is. This is what he does. And similarly, we actually see this in Exodus. So Deuteronomy 6.4, it includes a repetition. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We see that also in Exodus chapter 34. We see the Lord, the Lord. So 34 verses 6 and 7. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord passed before Moses, and he pro- the Lord proclaims the Lord. He proclaims who he is. And this is what he says in the end of 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. In this passage, we see God as merciful and gracious, loving and forgiving, but also just, just, excuse me, not clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity, offering punishment and discipline for that disobedience. And, and Moses actually points to this. The way we see chapter 6 structured is we see that in, in verse 4, and then if we jump down to uh, verses 10 through 15, I think we see an example of this as he further explains remembering who the Lord is. So if you jump down to verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, look at verse 12, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, and you shall serve him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. The Israelites are called to receive and to remember. They must hear and they must heed. So we, we have the word, but we must also know the word. We remember how God has been working from the very beginning to crush the head of the serpent and redeem his people, and it all culminates in Jesus. I think we see this in Hebrews chapter 1. The the author of Hebrews, he he introduces, he's just writing to the Jewish people. He introduces this revelation by the Son. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down to the right hand on the majesty on high. We have received the word and we remember the word as it reveals who God is and his big plan of redemption to offer salvation from the penalty of wrath for our sin through the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 4 commands the Israelites to hear. And we should likewise be exhorted to listen to the Bible. This is why it is the Bible that is preached on Sundays and on Wednesdays. It is why the Bible that is taught in our Sunday morning Bible studies, it's why we pray the Bible and read the Bible and sing the Bible and counsel with the Bible. Now, does that mean that we can't talk about anything else? Well, no, but it does mean that the Word is going to direct what we do talk about, and it's going to shape how we talk about such things. And the reason we emphasize the Bible so much 
the reason that we are word-centric, that we are, we are called people of the book, is because it is God's word. It's because of who he is that his word matters. And that's what Moses points to, and that's what we should be continually reminded of. Does the truth of who God is affect, affect you at all? Does it affect your daily life? Do you proclaim to believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you trust him in all circumstances? Or do you continue to worry? If you believe that, that God is loving and compassionate, do you continue to, to harbor hatred and bitterness in your heart? Or do you, do you offer out forgiveness because we have received the love of God? If you believe that God has given us boundless measures of grace, do you, do you continue to, to worry and, 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 and sit in your sin and don't know what to do with yourself? Or do you walk in the freedom that grace has given us? If you believe that God is holy and righteous and just, then do you seek that righteousness? Do you seek to live that out? Practically, are you living a righteous life by obeying the laws in our own country? Do you, do you pursue righteousness in your, in your home through discipline? Do you, do you live a righteous life so that others may see the glory of God? If, if, we, if, we, if we claim to believe who God says he is, and this should affect how we live, it affects what we say, how we talk, what we, what we think, what we do, it affects our relationships. And we see that, that, uh, that, uh, that affection, how it affects us in verses five and six. So throughout the Bible, there, there's a pattern that the biblical authors use to help explain and sort of apply the truth of God's word. People have observed why and how this is done, and they, they identify it grammatically as indicative and imperative. Those are big words. So basically, it is a statement and a command. It is a truth and an action, okay? We see that throughout the text. There's, there's multiple examples throughout the Bible, and I think we also see that here this morning. Moses is making a theological statement about God. The phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it kind of sounds like a Trinitarian statement, that, it, that affirms the unity of the three-person Godhead. And we know this to be true, as it is revealed throughout the rest of Scripture, but I don't think that's what Moses is referring to. I think instead of the unity, Moses is referring to God's exclusivity. There is only one true God, and he has revealed himself in the Bible. He is the God who created everything, who judged the whole world in the flood, and who saved Noah and his family, who called Abraham out of nowhere and gave his life and gave life back to his line through the barren Sarah. He chose Isaac over Esau. He used the hate, hated brother to take his people out of Egypt to save them during a famine. And then he brought his people out, back out of Egypt to the promised land through a runaway shepherd. He put on full display his glory, power, and majesty and showed to both the Egyptians and the Israelites who he is. And that's just what Moses and the Israelites knew at their point in history. We know how God continues to work for his people, in his people, through his people. Always faithful, always in control. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is it. It is true. There are no conditions to that statement. It is not subjective. There is one true God, regardless of what you think, feel, or believe. We don't question that statement, but we do have to ask a question. And now we get to verses five and six. We've heard that indicative. We've heard that statement, that truth of who God is. So we ask, what is next? What is the action that we take because of that truth? Let's read verses five and six again as we move on from law to love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The indicative-imperative combo is kind of like an if-then statement, if you're familiar with those. If we have received the word and we know who God is and how he works, then, right, then, then what? There's only one response suitable to that question, and it is a total and true love. But not only is it suitable, 
It is required. If we have received the word and we know who God is and how he works, then we love him totally and truly. Moses is calling the people to love with all that they are, heart, soul, and might. This is not a short list of areas where you have to love God, and once these are checked, then you're good to go, and the rest of the areas of your life are up to you. No, it is a total love. You're probably familiar with this verse, if not from our current text, then from the gospel accounts in the New Testament. It can be found in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 10, and there is referred to as the greatest commandment a summation of the entire law, because just as we saw, all of the law points to who God is. And this command points to all that we are. Just as verse four points to the exclusivity of God and who he is as the one true God, so this verse points to the inclusivity in our lives. It is all inclusive. It leaves nothing out. The three words used in verse five surely point to the total of our being. They're representative of all that you are. But they can also be broken down to help explain and apply what it means to love God totally. So let's look at these three components of verse five. To love God with all your heart, as we read in Deuteronomy, is gonna be far from what you were thinking. (laughs) Uh, For the Israelites, their word and their their understanding of heart is not this seat of emotions and and love, right? They're not sending heart emojis to God. Uh, But instead, what it it refers to here is a a category of, of, of their mind. The heart is defined as one's intellect or will or intentions, as opposed to feeling with your heart. You think with your heart, according to Deuteronomy. And this shapes your your choices and your decisions, your character. This is probably why all the New Testament references of Deuteronomy 6.5 actually include the word mind to to, to get that kind of all-encompassing aspect. So we see that you you should love God with all your heart. Next, we, we love God with all your soul. This is probably also differently than what you're expecting. This is, this is why we study the Bible. We meditate on the text and we take into consideration the context of the chapter in the book and the whole Bible uh, because soul is probably not gonna be what we think it is. So we let the Bible dictate uh, what it says. So anyways, in its basic sense, soul refers to, to just the life of an individual, a life that can be taken or lost. But it, it can also be understood to express for human beings all of the inner self. Now, here is the the emotions and the desires, these personal characteristics. A good example of defining soul is actually found in Psalm 103, verse 1. So David is writing the psalm, and he says in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So, So David's using, there's this technique, they call it parallelism. Basically, it just means he's taking this first line and the second line, and they mean the same thing. He's connecting them together. So when he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, he connects that to all that is within me. That's what this soul it is. It is all that is within you. And so to love God then with all your heart, with all your soul, means your whole self including your your rationality, your mental capacity, moral choices and will, inner feelings and desires, the the deepest roots of your life. And then finally we come to to love God with all your might. Now this is all the the abilities and the powers that one has. This one might be a little bit more obvious for us. When we hear might, we hear about just the strength and everything that we have. This is how we we love God with everything that we can do. Uh, But interestingly, this word can also be used uh, as an adverb. So in other texts, it's actually used as it, where it says, it says like greatly, right? They, they'll use that word or, uh, or exceedingly. And so it's, it's used here as a noun. And so it refers to all of our abilities and powers and strength. Uh, but it's also a reminder that we, that we, don't, just, uh, we don't just use our might to love God. Uh, we, we exhaust it. We exhaust our might. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your might. And I think, it's, I think it's, it's interesting, it's really cool. It kind of puts an exclamation point uh, to heart and soul. It's as if it's now saying, love the Lord your God with, with your total commitment and with your total self to total excess. Loving God sh- should be over the top. It must be a total love. Now, that being said, we actually have to take this a, f- a step further because in the Bible, we see that love is actually intricately connected to obey. Christ 
defines this for us in John chapter 14, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, there is a total love that you are required to do. And I hope that you are challenged by that. But there's also a requirement of perfection. So in your feeling challenged and exhorted, I actually want you to feel distraught. Because you can't do it. You cannot keep that law. You cannot totally love the Lord your God. And you will not obey all of his commandments. But God, in Christ, we have one who is perfect. Our Savior lived a perfect life, completely obeying all of the law. And then he died a perfect death in our place. Our disobedience, our failings of that law, they should have led us to a cross where we deserve death because of our sin and transgressions before God. Oh, but God being rich in mercy and love. He sent his son to die for us. So now, because of who Christ is and the grace that we have received, now we walk in obedience. Now we have a total love. And so this means that there's no area of your life left unaffected by this command. This means that all of your emotions so are you, are you angry in your heart uh, and, and, and according to Jesus committing murder in your heart towards your brother by being angry towards them? Are you finding joy and, and happiness as great emotion outside of God, outside of the word of God? What about our attitudes? Attitudes even towards our spiritual life. It should be, it should be a total love. So, so when, we, when we talk about receiving and remembering the word, this means that we want to love our time in the Word. We want to love our time praying. We want to love our time together as a church where the Word is preached. This also means that your attitude uh, towards your family is affected by this. Because as we see, and we've already read, but we will see, right, you are called to, uh, to, to disciple your children. Your husbands are called to, to love your wives, your attitude towards your coworkers, do they see the grace of God in your life as you, as, you, as you strive to obey his commandments in faith? Or do they wonder why you call yourself a Christian at all? What about your words? What we say, right? What we say as we, as we praise God, we use that, that same mouth to, uh, to curse the guy in front of us who won't go through a yellow light. In other words, we, we speak to our children, right? Fathers, are you, are, you, uh, are you exhorting your children or are you, you raising them up in your anger? Wives, are you, are you honoring your husbands and supporting him or are you nagging him? And this even comes down, perhaps uh, foremost for some of us, in our actions, Right, out of the overflow of our heart is our, is our words, and this is, what we, this is what we do. And so how you live your life, what you do on, on Friday after work, how do, you, how do you spend your weekend? Is it wasted? Are you preparing to worship God on the Lord's day and to, to go out into that work week again to proclaim the glories of God and the hope of salvation to your lost coworkers? of the actions you do when you're by yourself, when no one's looking. What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? The actions we take with our children and how we discipline them. Is that done in love? When, when you, and I think the Bible supports this, physically discipline your child, do you scoop them up and hug them and show that, that in that discipline you love them? It is a total love. There's, there's literally nothing you can think of right now that, that this does not apply to. But it must also be a true love. Now, if I just had to explain heart and soul and might, because they might mean something differently than we think, I most definitely have to explain the phrase true love. 
Uh, although now, not because of any sort of historical biblical context, uh, because I chose to use that phrase. So, um, and it's probably not actually what we think it means, uh, or not what I want it to mean, especially as it has been defined by culture. Most likely when I say true love, uh, several of you are thinking about marriage and, and falling in love. Uh, there are probably several Disney movies floating around in your head right now. No doubt some of those Disney songs are going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Uh, perhaps the better of you uh, thought of the movie The Princess Bride and the scene of true love. So, right, where, where Wesley, this, in this movie, the, the metaphorical Prince Charming, is almost tortured to death, and then Wesley's friends take him to Miracle Max, and the last words he mutters as the answer to why he is still alive, why is he, why is he hanging on to life after that torture, is true love. Well, friends, as good as that movie is, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. So we have been duped into this shallow and, and, and emotional, follow-your-heart love of our entertainment culture. And some of us escape into that fantasy uh, by falling in love and, and having our life perfected when that true love comes into our life and can be found. But the true love that I want us to look at is, is how we know and love God and commit ourselves to him because of what he has done. So now let's look at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So following verse five, this, this verse continues the pattern and adds another level of the total love. Moses calls the people to internalize the law of God, right? The commandment should be on your heart. Love God with your, your total being and then truly love him by letting it transform you. A true love that is transforming your life and your heart. This is transforming who you are and how you live. But also, I hope that we, that we recognize there's an anticipation here for the Israelites because there is a new covenant that we know of. So perhaps you, you hear that, that the commandment shall be in your heart. You think of Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant that God has, has given us. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out <clears throat> of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke when I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make <clears throat> with those. <clears throat> Excuse me. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is a new covenant because of the faithfulness of God, despite the unfaithfulness of God's people, it is now written on their hearts, and they truly, truly know the Lord. It is a true love because there has been a fulfillment of the covenant. We have received forgiveness by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And in him, by the Spirit, we have new hearts where we may truly love the Lord by the grace given to us that we may walk in obedience. True love is not defined by emotions, but by commitment. Some of us were here in this very room last night where we saw a, a wedding performed. <clears throat> and, and, and in that wedding, right, the, the, the officiant did not say, uh, love each other until it runs out. And then good luck with the rest. No. He said, you shall love each other till, till death do you part. Right? It is, it is a true love because of a commitment. As Christians, we refer to marriage as a covenant between husband and wife, between man and woman. So you're not gonna just stumble into this love by chance. We're not falling in and falling out of love. And uh, <clears throat> you're not gonna, not gonna stumble in it and then, then your soulmate catches you and you just lose yourself in their eyes. No, God calls you not to stumble but, but to commit and walk in his ways. And it is, a, it is a straight but narrow path. And it will not be easy. And the only sure footing you have is our king walking before us in his perfection. And again, the structure of the chapter, we actually see an example of this later in Deuteronomy 6, this time verses 16 through 19. 
So talking about this true love, this commitment of who God calls us to be and how to love him. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised, right? They are to be totally committed. A true love that follows all of his commandments and, and, and to the Israelites, wipes out the enemies of God. But this, this, this total love and this true love for God, that's the, this, this spills out. And this spills out as we carry on a legacy. So we come to the final portion of our text this morning, verses seven through nine. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As we come to the final portion of the text, we see the, the, the same literary technique that we saw in verse 5. So verse 5 uses these, these three main words to represent all of who we are, our total being. We actually see the same thing in verses 7 through 9. Right? There's these opposites or these extremes uh, that, that, you know, both ends. And this, this represents the entirety of life, all that we do now. So when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. So whether you're at home or you're out running errands and everything in between. When you lie down and when you rise. So at night and then when you get up in the morning and then when you go back to night and you lie down and everything in between. On your hands and between your eyes. This, this is everything you do, right? All of your actions, everything you see, everything that's right before you that, that you're looking forward to. And everything in between. On your house and on your gates. This one's maybe a little bit different. It's not referring to uh, between your front door and, uh, and then the gate in your front yard, which no one really has anymore. Uh, Moses is referring to the city gates. So whether you're at home or, the, or whether you're away and you're out in public or you're traveling. And, uh, and what is it that, that fills up all of this? The commands of the Lord. Remember, Moses is offering final exhortations to these people because the Israelites have already suffered from forgetfulness and disobedience. God brings them to their promised land after he moved all of creation and even the cosmos to display his might in the ten plagues. And after the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when they left. And after God wiped out Pharaoh and his entire army in the Red Sea. After all that, the people are afraid to go into Canaan. So, Moses says, teach these commands to your children. Do not forget again. Our God is faithful, so we must be faithful. Make sure everybody knows who God is and how he works and what he expects because we have failed before, so don't do it again. And just like before, Moses fleshes this out at the end of the chapter. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 25, we see a, a perfect example of this. When your son asks you in time to come, right, in the future, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, I'm just picturing this Israelite father with a smile on his face, like, yes, you get it. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. This is exactly what Moses is talking about in verses seven through nine. Make sure your children know. Start a legacy. 
that God's people know who their God is and what he has done. And the legacy starts now. Teach your children. Teach them diligently. And if they learn these commandments, and they too will obey and teach them to your children. You are charged with a personal legacy in your home. When you lie down and when you get up. When you're at home and when you walk by the way. Practically, there's two excellent ways to do this. Formally and informally. So, so officially, right, you have this, this formal time of teaching, and then you just have it, then an unofficial, uh, what, what, what verses 7 through 9 are talking about, just as you're walking by the way. So practically, what I would encourage you to do is uh, something that, that, that has been called throughout history and previous pastors, right, they call it family worship or family devotion. So perhaps nightly, I would, I would at least weekly, you're sitting down with your, with your entire family. And if you don't know what to do, here's a great simple model. Gideon can repeat this to you. Read, sing, and pray. You read the Bible. You sing together as a family, and then you pray together. You read the Bible. You sing together as a family, and you pray together. And it is, it is beautiful. I understand that it is, it is obedient to God, but right, he, it, his obedience is, is for our good always. And it just, it does my heart good that I, that I know that Gideon is, is learning the truths of Scripture. And it's fun that he already memorizes hymns that he sees an example of prayer. I was encouraged to do this when I first got to seminary. Gideon uh, was, was not quite a year old when we, or just after a year old when we first started this. And then Julia and Amos have done this since birth. There is not a time that they don't know when we were sitting down before bedtime and reading the Bible. There's not a time in their life when they're not gonna know that we love the Bible that we sing praises to our God and that we pray to a God who hears. Teach them, friends, diligently. But also, right, that's, that's really formal. Sometimes that's hard, right? We're, 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 we're back in Louisville. All of our family is here, right? So, so we spend time at relatives' houses and we get home late sometimes and, uh, and it's, it's really hard. And they're, they're whining, they need to go to sleep, right? But we calm down we read and we sing and we pray. But perhaps it might be easier for you, and I would encourage you to do this, this sort, of, this sort of unofficial time. So you have this formal teaching of family worship, and then you have what you might call like God moments. You're just, you're just anywhere. You're, you're on a walk. And you look up, and it's a beautiful day. You see the clouds, and you hear the, the rustle of the leaves as the wind blows. That's a perfect opportunity to just say, praise God creator of all things, and he created it good. Or maybe you're at the store, and you, you just get to see different people, and you see interactions, you see different relationships. And at those times, it might be helpful to explain the, the goodness of who God is and how he created people in his image. And other times, it might be helpful to explain the brokenness of this world. And now, not all relationships are perfect. Perhaps this one might be a little bit different, but helpful, Take your children to funerals, right? That, that is, a, that is a, just sort of a God moment where they understand that, that there's death in this world. And they can be sad, but there's also hope because in that moment, you can teach them that in the brokenness and in the sorrow of that death, there is hope. Christ is coming again and there, there, is, a, there is a hope of a resurrection And then there's some of you who aren't parents. So you're like, great, thanks, Andrew. What do I do? Well, I want to expand this a little bit. I know, coming close. Uh, Moses Moses tells them to teach your children diligently. And I'm reminded of another verse where our Lord tells us to teach. And in the final moments of Matthew and that great commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, baptizing them, and then what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Friends, you may not have children, but are you teaching those around you? And again, that can be a formal teaching. Maybe you have the opportunity to have a Bible study before work. Or maybe it's another God moment that in the midst of work, you can just talk about how good your God is and what he has done. 
You may not have children ever or at least yet, but you can still teach. So, finally, we have a, a public legacy. Verses 8 and 9, the, the way it talks about being bound on your hands and your head and your doorposts and the gates, right? These are also going to affect your children as your family's with you, but these are also outward signs for other people. So given the meaning behind the text, Moses is symbolically saying, uh, put these things on your hands and between your eyes and on your house and city gates. Uh, but eventually this text would, uh, would be taken literally as Jews would actually strap boxes to their hands and to their head. They, they would attach little fr- uh, uh, little boxes of the image of a scroll on their door frames. This actually continues today. So maybe you've seen, you've seen Orthodox Jews uh, the, attach these, these phylacteries and these uh, to themselves or mezuzahs to their doors. And we're often quick to dismiss this as being too literal. Uh, but I think we have to ask ourselves. The question is whether we are any more serious or successful in flavoring the whole of life with conscious attention to the law of God than these Jews. Yeah, we don't need to do that. Moses is just being symbolic. Well, then how are you doing it? Maybe we don't have objects as physical reminders of God's law, but are you representing God and his law? Or perhaps as we talk about a public, public legacy, I should say, are we? When, when others see us as Christians and, and us as Jefferson Town Baptist Church, when we reach out with our hands to do something, do they see the Lord our God, the Lord is one? When we are looking ahead and planning and growing and, and focusing on what's next right in front of us, between our eyes, do they say, do they see, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind, might? And when they are in our homes or, or in our church, do they see us truly loving the Lord by obeying his commandments, by the power of the Spirit, he has given us new hearts? And when we are out in public places or, or, or at work, do they see us teaching our children and teaching those around us the truth of who God is and what he is doing? Friends, God is not looking for little boxes or little pieces of paper with Bible verses on them. He is looking for his people to proclaim his glory. Glory from the Father revealed through the Son, full of grace and truth. God's people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ here and to the ends of the earth. We must leave a public legacy for all to see. That God continues to work in and through his people. And to the praise of his glorious grace, God may save some. And shouldn't that be our prayer? That because of who God is, because of our total love for him and the legacy that we are called to leave, God might save sinners to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word the truth of it. I pray this morning that we would be left challenged and changed, that your spirit would affect that change in us. And God, I ask that, that, that only the, the truth of your word and what was preached this morning would be left in the hearts of your people, uh, that we may go out from here proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is in his saving name that we pray.